Yes, hello and welcome to For and Against once again, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. Paul Roach with you here as always, lamenting the passing of footy for another season, uh, along with the regular stellar For and Against panel, consisting of Stephen Riley. G'day, Riles. G'day, Paul. G'day, Sam. G'day, everyone. Yeah, and speaking of Simon, g'day, Simon Johnson. Hey, Matt, how are you going? Always good to be here, Richie. Oh, I know, isn't it great? So in the show ahead, we'll dissect the latest AFL broadcast deal, what it means for that code, and indeed why the rugby league types got all hot under the collar about it. We'll talk to a sports management academic about the deal and the fallout. In the shootout, we'll consider a groundbreaking judgment that deals once and for all with the question of whether or not sport is a religion, as well as looking at some big numbers in the sports memorabilia market. Of course, we'll wrap up the show with Red Card, Yellow Card, where the uh, erroneous ways of our favourite sporting types get ventilated once again for uh, maximum value, our value that is. Uh, feel free to use the hashtag RCYC, as in red card, yellow card, if you happen to see something worth our consideration. And speaking of the socials, you can get us on Twitter at for and against, with a little underscore at the end, on Instagram, for.and.against. But for now, let's get into the show. $4.5 billion, that's what Channel 7 and Foxtel thought it was worth shelling out for being able to continue to broadcast the Aussie rules until 2031, after the current deal ends in 2024. It sees the AFL collecting $643 million a season, which is up from the current 473 mil, and that's up 36%. Some competition came in the form of Paramount, who own uh, Channel 10 and also the streaming service Paramount+. Plus. And we'll talk about streaming uh, as we as this conversation progresses. Uh, and also Nine Entertainment, who obviously owned the Nine Network and also Stan, uh, with the cynics suggesting the uh, the latter's interest was designed to up the price. So Channel 7 had less firepower when it came to the cricket. Look, I mean, Steve, we continue to be wowed by how much bigger the rights values get each time a code of note goes to market. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? These numbers will ever stop growing. Look, it, it, they are amazing, but honestly, they're cheap at half the price. When you think about it, destination TV, appointment TV is dying in almost every category except one, and that is sport. It's constancy year after year, it's ability to provide drama, to provide news, to go across different media. You, you just named three different bidders, but I, I tell you, there, there's probably you know, six or seven when you add uh, a whole lot of the tech companies, and that's only going to go up in the years ahead. Yeah, kind of agree, Riles. Um, and I think the person with the biggest smile on his face will be Gil McLaughlin, a swan song for Gil, obviously mm. handing over the baton. Um, yet another example of how well the AFL is administered, I have to say. Yeah, indeed. Well, joining us now to delve into the deal and what it all means is Dr. Hunter Fujak, lecturer in sports management at Deakin University. Welcome, Hunter. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Hunter, lots of angles to consider when it comes to what is being hailed as the biggest deal in Australian sports rights history. But tell me, does four and a half bill surprise you at all or is, or is that about par? Um, look, I, I think to a degree it was surprising from the perspective of, you know, the market, market had signalled for a long period of time that right have been inflated and probably reached a tipping point. The projections for the Australian media market in terms of advertising revenue is flat. So, you know, Australian media networks on freeware at 
least aren't projected to make any more money from advertising than they were five years ago. So obviously, if the broadcasters aren't really growing themselves, then you can't really expect them to necessarily continue paying more and more for broadcast rights. And admittedly, uh, a lot of the, the gain has come from the Foxtel component more so than Channel 7. But nonetheless, I suppose when we look at the broader market conditions, it was a very impressive result from some very astute um, negotiations by the AFL. Interested, um, I guess, to hear a bit of your perspective, Hunter, on um, the deal insofar as it is compared to Fox and Seven and who gets the best deal out of this. As I understand it, there's going to be a bunch of marquee matches on Seven and Fox obviously have their, their own benefits here. Why is it that um, you know it is such a, a strong partnership between those two and how is it divvied up that way? Yeah, what's really interesting here, and again, this this ties in quite well into comparing, I guess, the giving and taking between the league and, and the broadcasters for the AFL and also for the NRL. And so when we look at this particular deal, I think Seven would be quite happy with it. There were concerns that there would be some trading away of those local games and local markets in, in the heartlands of WA and South Australia. And I was quite surprised that Channel 7 managed to keep those in those local markets. I, I was pretty confident that those would have been traded away to Foxtel because one of the key challenges for Foxtel is that, of course, they're after subscribers. And one of the easiest ways to get subscribers is to get that premium content in local markets. So the fact that everyone in WA can still watch their local teams, the fact that everyone in South Australia can watch their two local teams on, on free-to-air every week, and let alone, obviously, in New South Wales and Queensland also, was quite surprising to me that that remained on Seven. So I think Seven would be quite happy in that respect. At the same time, Foxtel would be quite happy with this move towards an NRL-style schedule that involves a bit of a Super Saturday exclusivity, which I think has been really key to the NRL deal. So I think the the AFL more broadly has given some concessions that have helped the broadcasters um, further monetize their content and thus allow for that uptake in the rights fee. Just just go down that Super Saturday road a, a little bit. I mean, the, the AFL, I think, have sort of sold it as being non-destructive because it's only the first eight rounds of the premiership. It's like a gateway drug to Foxtel and KO for the rest of the season. You know, do do we, should the AFL be worried that they're going to lose some of that buy-in in the first part of the season or is it a, a, a fair enough calculated risk? I would definitely describe it as a calculated risk um, and, and a fair one. Um, I, I don't think, you know, the AFL is at any risk of losing any fans simply because they need a pay TV subscription to watch on a Saturday. And for a pay TV provider, again, using the NRL example, having that day of exclusivity has been really important to them for driving subscriptions, as had been Monday night football in the deals before it. And so that's what's really key for pay TV providers is having that point of difference. And, you know, I guess in the prior deals, the free-to-air coverage of, of, of AFL had been so broad that I guess it disincentivized people from having to need a subscription because you could basically watch ample football without one. So uh, I think this is a happy medium compromise, but undoubtedly come the next rights deal, I'm sure they'll be pushing for an even more extended exclusive period on that Saturday. So I think this is an entry point, but definitely not the end point in terms of transitioning into some exclusive day of the week for, for Foxtel. Mm. Hunter, I think one of the most intriguing elements of this deal was, in fact, the reaction it got from the Rugby League fraternity. And I, I think it's fair to say that, that that as a group, they were sort of up in arms that, that, that their most recent deal is 
you know, materially different, uh, materially inferior to the, to this deal, mm. and that that caused a fair bit of hullabaloo, as I say, amongst the talking heads in the administration of rugby league, demanding answers internally of the, of each other of themselves as to why they didn't have the same deal. Is is that a reasonable thing for them to expect? A broadly speaking fair deal and uh, and and why don't they have that if they if that's a reasonable expectation or entitlement i think that the um the nrl has done a very bad deal um to be honest uh they've the last two deals they've finally reached a point of relative parity on a per annum rights fee and yes you can say afl games go for three hours versus two but it's a lot more complex than that because rugby league offers freeware television four of the five top rating sport events of the year, for instance, that real marquee content around origin. And there are other factors essentially, which contribute to these two sport properties being of largely commensurate value. And accordingly, they should be achieving broadcast rights of largely similar value. And from the NRL's perspective, they're, they're even more reliant on that deal to fund the whole sport. You know, the AFL can afford to actually have a lesser deal between the two because their revenue base is broader across sponsorship and then club club revenue. So you have an NRL administration that is more reliant on this broadcast deal funding the whole of the game. They've got a property that is basically as valuable as the AFL and they've ended up with a deal that's significantly less valuable. And that really comes back to poor administration and poor governance by the people in charge of running that deal. Goes back to uh, my comment about Gil. He's obviously uh, done mm. pretty well by the sounds of things. Hunter, um, I also, just going back to the AFL deal, was keen to get your thoughts on whether there was a political element to all of this. We've obviously had a change of government. There's been some soundings that we've heard from the new Minister for, for Communications, uh, in Re- Michelle Rowland, in relation to the anti-siphoning laws and, and to ensure that there were a minimum number of um, games that would be still on free-to-air TV, not behind a paywall. It looks like the deal seems to have ticked those boxes. But, I mean, do you see that that pressure bore fruit in, in relation to the negotiations? I actually don't think it, it really had a huge um, imp- implication in terms of the final deal. Uh, people get concerned, rightfully, that a removal of the anti-siphoning list would see major event, major sport events come off free-to-air. And we saw that, obviously, to some degree with cricket. Um, but at the same time, look at where cricket's landed in terms of its um, rights deal. Um, so, you know, there, there's often very broad concerns about what the removal of the list would mean for sports. But at the same time, what we've seen is that the sports that have gone exclusively onto pay TV in the past, whether it's Super Rugby or the A-League, for instance, have struggled to achieve the mass exposure needed to maintain their mainstream presence. And so it would be suicide for a mainstream sport to overcommit to a pay TV operator because it's being on a free-to-air channel like 9, 10 or 7 that gives you that cultural um, power to maintain your mainstream status. So um, I think the fears were overblown because, again, the AFL in particular are smart enough to appreciate that having that wide coverage on free-to-air is what perpetuates their mainstream dominance. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I I do think cricket in the UK is a cautionary tale about Mm. how to kill a sport by Mm. taking short-term money from uh, behind a paywall. I I do think, obviously, Gill is brilliant and Philanders, well, I think Philanders has done all right the last couple of years. But I reckon Gill's a bit lucky as well this time around. I think the Paramount Plus factor was, was a huge thing. They needed to go in hard. They needed to put in a big bid to have a go. And, it, you know, it, it, seven and nine, you know, and I know a lot of this is theatre, right, that they're saying, oh, you know, there's not a lot of money to go around. Cricket 
despite the India deal, the Australian stuff's disappointing, you know, down, 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 prices are down. And then Paramount Plus comes along and says, we're going to, we, we need to make a mark. You know, we've got 10, that'll cover the free-to-air stuff. Paramount Plus will get subscribers in. That timing was just gold for the AFL, and I wonder if it's going to be gold next time around for the NRL. How big a factor do you think that is, having the new player in the in the bidding mix? Well, I think uh, you create your own luck, and Peter Volandis decided to renegotiate a deal without an open tender at the worst possible moment in a COVID crisis <laughs> against, apparently, uh, uh you know, the advice he was offered. And so um, not three weeks before the AFL deal was signed, I was teaching my postgraduate students in sport broadcasting how to organize a rights auction. And it's it's really not difficult. You know, you create competitive tension in a rights market by doing things such as silent auctions to maximize the amount of bidders you have competing. And the AFL really delivered what is quite literally a textbook example of how to create competitive tension in the rights market. And that's not some revolutionary approach to, to, to sports rights. That's just bread and butter business. So I don't really put it down to lack of timing at all because the, AF, the NRL didn't need to rush into re-signing their deal. They still had ample time left on their deal. They could have waited. They could have extended for a short period of time, exactly like the AFL did. So ultimately, you create your own luck when you have good governance and good people in the right positions. And that's really been the story of AFL's whole history and really the story of rugby leagues also. <laughs> Damn, uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, Tell us what you really think, Hunter. That's fantastic. Terrific. Well, yeah. it's not what you'll read in any news corporation papers, that's for sure. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> so, so Hunter, in, in wrapping up, what does the what does the future hold? And there's sort of two components to that question. I mean, at the outset there, you said that you were surprised by the number because some of the economic fundamentals underpinning it, you know, had, had stagnated, the advertising revenue and so forth. So, you know, will, will the numbers continue to go up for Aussie rules and rugby? league and cricket and so forth and the second component of that question is around the the other players the apple and the amazon and etc cetera, etc cetera. they haven't really seemed to have much of a nibble in the australian uh, sports rights markets where they they have started to have a, a nibble and even a, a good little chomp uh, at a couple of the over, overseas markets i'm thinking america in particular mm-hmm. so yeah what does the future hold with those those two streams of, of the question one number that i guarantee you will go up is the price of your ko subscription we will ultimately all pay for this deal um so you know we have you know ko is a comparatively cheap product by global ott standards especially for the rights that you get on it so inevitably these costs get passed on to consumers and no doubt we will eventually pay more for ko in due course you know for me the most interesting thing here i guess is partly around the the competitive tension now in the market and this sort of breaking away of the mega sports versus you know patrick delaney would say t1 t2s i'm not sure it's even that simple anymore because you have afl that's absolutely broken away from the pack at the same time as channel 7 wants to divorce cricket i'm not convinced nrl will achieve a significant uplift um, when they come into their time to renegotiate so you know, what's really interesting is that when rugby union professionalized at the start of, of the millennium, you know, the gap in revenue between rugby Australia, um, ARU and AFL was literally four to one. It was literally a four to one gap between the two. You, you fast forward nearly 20 years, the gap has gone to about eight to one, nine to one. Hmm. 
you know, what that gap is going to look like in 2027 when the AFL is banking probably one and a half billion dollars in total across everything. Mm. Uh, and every other other code might be making 100 million, 200 million max. So, you know, the gap in our market is growing incredibly. So I think we're at a really interesting time now where the AFL is going to be able to bank a lot of this revenue to to fulfill broader organizational goals in the country. You know, if, if all our sports were listed on the stock market, you know, the AFL is, is trading at a premium now because they've certainly got a lot of uh, momentum in the broader sport market landscape and they'll be hard to sort of chase down from here, I suspect. And the uh- and false question about Amazon and Apple. I think what's really interesting is that obviously they're, they're tentatively moving into this space. Perhaps the most uh, interesting deal is obviously the MLS global deal, Major League Soccer with mm. Apple TV. So yes, yes, the competitive tension is growing the big, I've personally flipped on this in, in my time uh, thinking about the best strategic path for a major sport that wants to be a mainstream sport. The second a major sport like the NRL or the AFL signs a deal with Amazon or Apple or one of those, um, yes, they might earn a lot of money on the next broadcast deal, but they'll also lose the benefits that come with being aligned with News Corporation in terms of broader media coverage, positive coverage, coverage in press coverage in radio, coverage in television. And the reason the NRL and AFL are so culturally dominant is because they're literally ubiquitous across our two biggest media or three biggest media players. And so the real big risk with any of these bigger codes jumping onto these uh, platforms is yes, you might get a big rights fee, but you will lose a lot of cultural coverage across broader media. Mm. And so I, I personally think there will be some reservation to making that jump. Um, you know, if I was AFL and there was the deal from Paramount, it could have probably been 150% more over and above what it already got. And I still wouldn't have taken it simply because they've covered A-League so poorly that I would have very little confidence in them representing my content as to the standard I would require as the AFL. So yes, these providers are on the horizon, but I'm not. I'm, I'm convinced that there's still quite a bit of risk with jumping ship to them potentially in the next right steal. Mm. So, folks, if you thought Murdoch dominated our political landscape, it turns out that the News Corp dominates our sporting landscape as well. I mean, there's a whole other interesting topic of conversation I'm we don't shocked. have time for the, uh, the you know how heavily the support the, our sports rely on Murdoch and uh, and News Corp. But look, uh, for now, uh, Hunter, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us on For and Against. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Hunter Fujak there, lecturer in sports management at Deakin University. Uh, And we look forward to being blown away by the next sports rights deal. Yes, on to the shootout where we cover a couple of other topics uh, in shorter fashion. And uh, under the moniker, I, th- I think this is sport as religion. I think this mm. is the, uh, the correct title it's for this one. one. It's one for the lawyers here, Jono. I was very interested, interested to learn that a court, well, it's actually an employment tribunal, um, but there was a judge involved. So, you know, there's enough. Call it a court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which, uh, which jurisdiction, Rachel? Well, it's in Scotland. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so this court has finally made a determination as to whether a sport be- can be considered a religion. Kind of. According to the Scottish Herald, and I owe great debt to the reporting in the Scottish Herald, a case was brought by an Edward McClung, a Glasgow Rangers fan of some 42 years from uh, beautiful Bonnie Ridge, uh, presumably in Glasgow. He launched a claim of discrimination under the Scottish Equality Act mm-hmm. after the company that he owns lost out on business with a couple of companies, one called Dusan Babcock and another one, funnily enough, called NRL. 
which I further exploration revealed was not the National Rugby League as we know it here in Australia, but I think it was like an engineering recruiting company. Anyway, he told this employment tribunal that if you watched your team weekly, like he did, for decades and participated <laughs> in other related activities like the Rangers Foundation or other charitable work, then you are doing as much as protected religious group members do. Now, the judge said that while some of the world's greatest players might claim that their devotion to the game is uh, on a par with religion, she didn't think that was the case. Quote, I considered support for a football club to be akin to a lifestyle choice rather than relating to a substantial aspect of human life and behaviour. I say that, and I think this is controversial for some sports fans, I say that because support for Rangers has no larger consequences for humanity as a whole... Nothing underpin it beyond, beyond a desire for the team to do well. So uh, apparently Mr. McClung alleged that Doos and Babcock manager uh, didn't offer him work due to the team he supports. And the the other cracker was uh, he also claimed he was discriminated against when an unnamed worker said to this Mr. McClung that a colleague had said that he was unusually okay for a Rangers fan. Uh, so, look, the word frivolous springs to mind here, Jono. It, look, it does. But then, I mean, if you look at – I mean, thank you for sharing the link to the judgment, Rich. It's probably the most interesting judgment I've read in about 10 years. And I've, as you know, read a, read a couple over the years. There are 81 paragraphs that the employment judge, L. Wiseman, has been forced to write over this dribble of a case. Date of judgment, 23 August 2022. And it looks like – I'm not sure if Judge Wiseman is uh, – uh, a man or a woman, but he or she has... I think it's female from right, memory of the she's, article. She's yeah. done a fantastic job. She's taken it very seriously. <laughs> she's dealt with all of the arguments that have been put forward and she's downed him. <laughs> I don't think there's an appeal prospect that I can see uh, at all. In your 45 seconds in, yeah, reviewing the judgment. <laughs> particularly close Oh, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. I think the judge has hoisted herself on her own petard. She said that the beliefs must be genuinely held. It must not be an opinion or a viewpoint. I can assure you that no Rangers fan sees any other opinion or viewpoint. It must be a belief as to a weighty and substantial aspect of human life and behavior mm. uh-huh mm. it must take this one might be a stretch a certain level of cogency seriousness mm. cohesion mm. Yeah. and importance i tell you there's a lot of people who are regarding you know your finals football of any code uh, any code of football as uh, being pretty damn important and it must be worthy of respect in a democratic society not being compatible with human dignity and not conflict with the fundamental rights of others. And I think there are a lot of so-called religions which wouldn't pass that test either, just quietly. She does compare it to veganism, though, as well, and says that it's, it's really? not like that. Yeah, at the end. So I missed that bit. Fascinating judgment. Yeah. It's a great one. Look, to your point, Riles, I mean, I think with, with you know, I think Her Honor is simply out of touch with popular opinion, frankly. Uh, look, collectibles, sporting collect- collectibles. We don't talk about this a lot. Uh, so, onto something far more sensible now than, um, than than the judgment we were just talking about. And twelve point six million US dollars recently changed hands for the most expensive piece of sports memorabilia sold at an auction in world history. And it was a. Do, do you know? Do you know? Do you have you read no, ahead? No, no, I haven't. Do, do what, tell. Have a guess. What What was well, it? It'd be a US sports or a it's baseball US. card or a, a baseball card. Well done. Got it in one. So this card was issued by the collectible company Tops in 1952, and it features uh, Mickey Mantle, who I'm reliably informed was uh, one of the best switch hitters in baseball history. And according to the, the people that sold it, uh, Heritage Auctions, it would have been at the time sold in a, a rack, wax-wrapped 
pack. I knew I'd get that wrong. A wa- wax-wrapped pack that costs about a penny or a, <laughs> penny or a nickel. Thanks, Steve-O. Uh, it was graded 9.5 out of 10 by, a, get this company, Sports Card Guarantee Corporation. Wow. Yes, a business exists to authenticate and grade trading cards. And uh, someone associated with that company gushed. It's almost perfectly centered top to bottom and left to right. It's got four sharp corners. The color is beautiful. The fact that it remained in this condition for 70 years is truly a miracle. That's a lot of money for some sharp edges. It is. I wonder what the NFT version is going to go for oh, as well. Don't, don't get started on that. And uh, curiously, this beat the previous record of 9.3 mil that was achieved earlier in 2022 by the jersey worn by Diego Maradona when he scored the Hand of God goal. That jersey, wow. 9.3 million large. Now, Riles, uh, you must have a few of these kind of things gathering dust in the back of your cupboard. What's your favourite bit of memorabilia that you own and, and what's the piece you covet the most? You know, it's interesting. I, um, I, have, I have none left. I um, oh. used to covet a signed business card of my dad's that was signed by Kerry Bostead. Oh, nice. uh, at uh, the local bolo one night, uh, that was that was pretty precious to me. But but the but the best bit of memorabilia in my wider family is owned by my brother-in-law, and it's quite controversial because it's a signed pair of Viv Richards's trousers. Oh, right. Right. His his whites. So far, his so whites, good. and they've been signed by Viv and handed over the the railing to. To, you know, he was a young kid at the time. The problem was it doesn't come with that authentication. So <laughs> it it's his work. <laughs> I mean, why would, why would you make it up? <laughs> so is it really Viv's trousers? Are Ooh. they really? I'm not sure. Oh, wow. <laughs> when, when was it given to him at, 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 a, at a game, at a ground? Yeah, or? Not sure we want to know, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, fair question, actually. Yeah, could we get into danger? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. That's a, dear uh, just lift yourself, right, lift okay. yourself up, Simon. So, uh, early 80s, early 80s, the Windy's in their prime. <laughs> and, uh, allegedly. All right, we'll because, move on. Because, you know, it can't be authenticated. And a yeah. bit of memorabilia that you covet, Steve-O, like if you, you know, access to anything, what, what would you... Tell us a bit about yourself. What uh, bit of memorabilia would you love to own? No, uh, no, I got, I got nothing for you, Paul. I just, I just, uh, all I know is that I wouldn't be able to put it up in any part, any prominent spot, and it would gather dust, and I'd regret spending whatever I spent to get it. I gave no. him four, four three hours, four hours to, to come That's up with something. What he about, calls himself a Hawks fan. Surely it'd be something Hawthorne related. What about you, Jono? He's, uh, he's really a Swans fan. You know that, don't you? Yeah, just, yeah. Just, we've got Indeed. to convert him back. Anyway, yeah. it's in a whole other story. John, remember a bit your favourite bit you, you own or you have? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, as you know, I went to the US Masters a few years ago. I was lucky enough to see Adam Scott um, win, which was fantastic. And I picked up after that a framed, signed photo of Adam in his green jacket. Uh, and it's that photo where he was um, posing for the press afterwards along with a replica yellow and green Masters flag, and I, I had that mounted. Mm. So that hangs in pride of place in, I don't know, my study or something. In the pool room. In the pool room, straight to the pool room. So, yeah, that's probably my best one. Um, it's a hard one, what I would covet. I mean, I think I'd go for, like, maybe an iconic 
sporting moment. Maybe, you know, Muhammad Ali springs to mind as one of the greatest of all time. So his gloves, if they could be, you know, from one of his great fights over the years, potentially. The mm. Thriller in Manila. I'm sure they'd be worth gazillions of dollars if mm. they're still around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my favourite bit, uh, so I was at the 99 Cricket World Cup uh, final in at Lords. In fact, I worked at it, but that's sort of by neither here nor there. Um, but as you we went into the ground, they were handing out little sort of A5 size um, pieces of cardboard with the teams, t- two teams on it, and you know 1999, the very sort of simple but formal sort of 1990 Cricket World Cup lords, you know the team lists and so on and so forth. So it's a little memento for everyone. It might have cost a pound, I think, maybe on your way in. So I got one of them, and then at the end of the game, which of course Australia won, because of where I was working, i.e. in the members uh, members stand, I had access. To, I was able to go up the stairs and go to the the door of the dressing room, the Aussie dressing room, where I found a whole lot of, of the press pack talking to the the Aussies. And so I managed to hover around this press pack wearing my black and white. So I had my, that was my, my pass kind of thing to be there. And as each player came out, I got them to sign my little my little card. Nice. Now, I didn't get there for the very beginning. So I missed Punter, Steve Waugh, and regrettably, Shane Warne. But I've got all the others, and I've since got Ponting's signature. But yeah, so that likewise is, is framed and yeah, somewhere in my bedroom, somewhere, I think. Somewhere, nice pr- somewhere prominent. And look, I've always coveted, I'm not sure if this is, could be called memorabilia, I've always coveted a Formula One car, like an old Formula One car. Not, not super old, but every so often you see one come up for sale. And indeed, a race car used by Danny Kvyat uh, to achieve a podium in the 2019 Formula One World Championship was recently sold for about 650,000 Aussie. As uh, a Toro Rosso, for those who know Formula One, and it came complete with all the, all the gear, all the hydraulic systems and the gearbox and so on and so forth, but it was missing its engine. So um, can't drive it anyway. And look, you know, I Looks can make some, I can make some fairly good Formula One noises, as you know, Jono. So um, yeah, I would uh, I would like to <laughs> I would like <laughs> I would like to have the wherewithal and perhaps someone to store a Formula One car. That's the bit of memorabilia um, that I thus covet. And that <laughs> that brings us to the end of a rather indulgent one more time, Richard. Shootout. Ah, come on. Oh, yeah. come on. Well, it's the old V10 era. I can't really do the current ones these days. Knock it off, Jono. You're just taking the mic. I think we're going to have to change our uh, our sting, you know, the sound that we make between segments, and we're going to put that in starting next time around. Instead of the whistle? I'll work on it. I'll give, yeah. I'll give the production team a few samples. All right, that's the end of the shootout. Let's move on to a red card, yellow card. Yes, red card, yellow card, where we uh, take the mick out of sporting types who've um, done something silly off the field of play. Riles, kick us off. What do you got for us? Well, we've had uh, Gary Player do it recently, and now we're into the world of basketball, where Luka Doncic is going into a legal battle with his mum because she won't release his trademark. His mother, wow. Miriam Potterbin, has uh, apparently had the uh, trademark to Luka Doncic 7. And uh, yeah, I'm sure that when he was young and picked up, it was all for a good reason. Mum will take care of it. Well, now he's got some new sponsors. He needs to change it up. He said, Mum, can you give it back? And she's gone, no. Where do you find these, Riles? I'm not mm. sure who I'm nominating. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mum. This one, this one got mainstream coverage. Oh, <laughs> it was I, amazing. I think you've got to give that to Mum, don't you, for holding things back? I think it's no longer red card, yellow card. It's family feud yeah. after the last few shows. Yeah, good call. There's been a few ones. Was it the players? Gary Player and Gary Son? Gary Players, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. great. Yeah, um, 
No, Jack Nicholas got, did it. Yeah, of course. Of course, you've got to give that to mum, don't you? You're like the mum so. for yeah, yeah. being a bit sort of come on, grown up boy now. We don't know the full story, but let's give it to mum. That's true, but that's that hasn't stopped us in the past, Jono. This is true. What was her name again, Roz? Just for the record, Mrs. Donkey. Miriam Patevin. Patevin, there you go. Remember that yeah. name, folks. Remember that name, Yellow Card here on Four and Against, Jono. Uh, Roger, Roger Federer. Mm. Ooh. Bear with me. Oh, <gasps> no. Take all the time you need. He's recently retired. My humble opinion, the, the GOAT, 20 grand slams. I know he's been overtaken by a couple of players, but he's the GOAT. He's worth over a billion dollars, massive ongoing sponsorships. He's going to go all right in retirement. Why the nomination? For precisely the reason that never once, never once in his entire career, has he ever had a single red card, yellow card scandal yeah. through a 23-year career? Cool. He's happily married to Merka, been with her since 2000. Two sets of identical twins. They're both mind, identical, are they? Yeah, uh, apparently. Perhaps. I mean, you see photos of them and it's just picture perfect. His mm. family. Everything about Roger mm. is so perfect. So to my mind, it's just a little disappointing. <laughs> and I'm going to have to nominate him for a yellow card for being too perfect, <laughs> both on and off the court. Bit of a stretch, Jono. It is. But in all, I, in I, all seriousness, though, enjoy retirement, Roger. Mm, He's I, it. I like what you've done there. But, um, yeah, I do also like the... Fl- you know, you know, just... I, I was just going to say, Roger Federer started as a tantrum-throwing brat. So he turned that around. You, you, red card still still noted and still deserve it. But, uh, you know, even more amazing when he was young, he was in all sorts of trouble. Sorry, Paul. Carry on. Not at all. I shall. Thank you. Uh, look, I do love the flat earth crowd, especially those in sports. So one minute you're ad- admiring a supreme athlete for all their achievements, and next minute you are shaking your head at the lack of achievement in theirs. And uh, Shaq O'Neal, who you might have noticed was in Australia not that long ago, although not exactly sure what for, is the latest contributor. So when he was out here in Australia referencing his experience on that on his flight out here, he raises evidence that, quote, I flew 20 hours today. Not once did I go... This way, gesturing his arm in sort of a 30 to 45 degree diagonal. I flew straight. And then he pointed out that he didn't tip over or go upside down during the trip. Uh, He's also suggesting that he was unconvinced the earth rotates. You know, they say the world's spinning. I've been living on a house on a lake for 30 years. Not once did the lake rotate to the left or the right. Quotes, driving from Florida to California all the time and it's flat all the way. Uh, you mean to tell me that China is under us? It's not. The world is flat. It's by all reports, Shaq is a, so an incredibly successful businessman and a pretty bright guy. Well, but, uh, he may be the former, uh, but the latter I'm less convinced <laughs> about, Jono, just based on what I've heard just then. So, look, I'm giving Shaq a, a, a straight red for that sort of... Drivel? Um, yeah, idiocy. <clears throat> Wake up to yourself. And so with the end of Red Card, Yellow Card, that brings us to the end of another for and against. So it leaves me to the simple task of saying farewell, Stephen Riley. Goodbye to you. Always a pleasure. See you soon. See you later, Simon Johnson. Jono, thanks for being part See of the show as always. I want one more of the sound effects. Just one more. Come. Nice. Love it. Yeah, across the mic. You like that? Uh, and it's goodbye from me. Paul Roach, perhaps permanently after that little effort. Don't forget, get us on Twitter at for and against underscore Instagram forward dot and dot against. We'll do it all again in a fortnight's time. Until then, it's bye for now.